Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City. It is tremendous to see such a large crowd tonight. Let me ask a question, because we always want to know numbers. If you're here tonight, would you mind raising your hand just so I can get a quick... (laughs) It never fails. Thank you. Uh, Wow. Let me ask another question. If you're here for the first time tonight, would you raise your hand? Wow. All right, now be honest with me. If you are here for the last time tonight, (laughs) would you raise your hand? All right, that's a handful of you. And good riddance, because it's crowded enough. Um, All right, well, let's see. Um, Well, to those of you who are new, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we are about, what Socrates uh, in the City is about. Uh, And since you are here for the first time, I could pretty much say anything, and you'd believe me, right? So it falls to me to tell you the bad news is that you've stumbled into a UFO cult. And uh, you're not going to leave this room uh, until the mothership appears, which will be very soon. And then we're we're all going to go to a better place. So if you didn't know that, I apologize in advance, but that's what's happening to you this evening. Um, No, what Socrates and City is about is a number of years ago, uh, 10 years ago, amazingly, 10 and a half years ago, a group of uh, New Yorkers, friends of mine and I, decided that um, the unexamined life is not worth living. Perhaps you've heard of that. Socrates said it about 25 centuries ago. He didn't say it in English. We're not sure exactly what he said, but it was in Greek. And we thought, you know what? That's a great idea. And New York is not a terribly examined place. Uh, Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had some kind of a forum where we could have speakers who would sort of uh, talk about the big questions, the big issues, the things that people maybe aren't talking about at the 92nd Street? Why? Yeah, if you're... If you're here, you're not there. I think they have, Kirst- they have Kirstie Alley is speaking tonight. Um, but we thought that we need, to, uh, we need to address the big questions, the questions that, uh, that people are often afraid to address, uh, questions about what we like to call life, God, and other small topics, you know, all the, 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 the big questions. Um, and uh, we think it's important to, to explore those questions and always to do it uh, with civility, right? In other words, if, if you're hearing from somebody tonight with whom you disagree, that you would treat that person civilly, that you would hear them out, uh, and that if you don't hear them out, uh, you'd be uh, a stupid jerk, basically. And that would be wrong. Um, no, but in all seriousness, there, we have an issue with civility in our culture. Um, we have an issue with civility. And uh, if you don't agree with that, I think you're a stupid jerk. So... Um, <laughs> But we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could come to a place and, uh, and hear from somebody opining on the big uh, issues of life, and if it could be in an environment where you could get to ask questions and so on and so forth. So that's what we do uh, tonight. Uh, let me A word on our format, by the way, in case you don't know how we do this. Our speaker speaks for about 35 or 40 minutes, uh, and then hopefully we have uh, ample time for Q&A. That's, that's the fun part of the evening. That's where you get to stand at the microphone and pontificate while everyone looks at their watches uh, and wonders, why aren't you aware that no one is listening to you? Because it's not, it's not a question. Uh, that's, uh, that can be fun. That can be kind of a spectator sport. So that's what happens at the end of the evening is that people embarrass themselves. And those people, of course, this second, by definition, aren't listening to me. Otherwise, they wouldn't do that. But you know they're in the room. There are people in this room now who are going to do that. And you'll know and you'll say, fascinating, because Eric went on and on. And they still did it. Still, they still did it. How did that happen? And it's just a paradox. It's a huge paradox. Speaking of paradoxes, since we have a philosopher speaking to us tonight, um, you can see that this room is very crowded, okay? Very crowded. Uh, I believe the reason for that is that there are probably too many people in the room. Either that, 
or perhaps it has something to do with the size of the room itself. Whether it's the number, it's, if that's my wife, I'm not here. Whether it's the number of people or the size of the room that's causing the crowdedness is actually very hard to determine. It may be both. In any case, the speaker tonight is a philosopher, and I'm afraid that right here at the outset, we've stumbled uh, into a philosophical conundrum, one that is no less compelling than that of Zeno's paradox of Achilles and the hare, which is not to be confused with Bono's paradox of Sonny and Cher. That's very similar. You laugh, but they're very similar, and he'll explain that. I love, I love paradoxes. Now, actually, speaking of paradoxes, did you notice I had to, just had to mention this because this ju- grabbed my throat when I read the paper this morning. Did you notice this morning uh, that yesterday in the Boston Marathon, someone, Jeffrey Matai of Kenya, Kenya, ran the fastest marathon in the history of the world? Did you know that? But here's the paradox. He ran the fastest marathon in history, but it's not the marathon world record. Did you know that? Do you understand that? I think now I have to explain it, I guess. But that's actually true. I couldn't believe it when I read it. It said he's run the fastest marathon in history, 26.2 miles, an official course, marathon in Boston. I mean, that's sort of like the most venerable marathon course in the world, right? Uh, he ran the fastest marathon ever, two hours, three minutes, and two seconds, which is fundamentally mind-boggling. But he actually did that, and it counts, right? But it doesn't count as a world record. And it doesn't count as a world record even though it counts as the fastest Boston Marathon because it was, uh, because the course is not like an official world record course. It goes downhill 450 vertical feet over the course of 26 miles, and so that doesn't count. And, and it was wind-aided. I think, like, you know, he was... Yeah, no kidding. He had like a 600-mile-an-hour tailwind for part, parts of the course, and so he didn't even... His feet, like, touched down six times in the course of the last 10 miles. But the fact is that... But that actually happened. And I thought, there's another weird paradox, that he ran the fastest marathon in history. And you're like, yes, but you don't get the world record. So anyway, um, well, we haven't had a regular Socrates in the city for some time. I just want to say that um, we didn't actually have a regular event since November. We had one in December, which, of course, was our, our great gala with, with uh, Chuck Colson and hundreds of people. And actually, how many people were at the gala? Anybody here at the gala? A, f- a few of you. Okay. Um, you survived the gala. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing, actually. But since then, um, a lot of things have been going on. I want to explain a little bit of that. It's all super positive. Otherwise, I would just shut up about it. But um, uh, we've had, first of all, one uh, big uh, Socrates success story. I may have told this before, but it, it bears repeating because it's so wonderful. Seven years ago, uh, we had an event uh, at, I think it was the Union League Club, uh, which is where all the people who didn't read the emails correctly are now, right? That's, that happens. In, I, I guarantee you people are going to walk in if they haven't already who have already been to the Union League Club. And uh, I'm not going to single you out. You want to raise your hands? I'll give you a free book. Would you raise your hand? No, I don't believe it. Um, but, but, uh, but we had an event about seven years ago, and the speaker was Dr. Armand Nikolai of the Harvard uh, Medical School who uh, wrote a book comparing the worldviews of C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud. And it's a great book called The Question of God, and he spoke to Socrates in the City. And uh, at that Socrates in the City event, a friend of mine, Mark uh, Berner, who's not here tonight, invited uh, a friend of his, a writer named Mark St. Germain, who was so taken with this comparison at this Socrates event between C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud that he decided, since he writes plays, that he would write a play about that. And he wrote a play about that. It's called Freud's Last Session. Some of you have heard of it. And Mark, you're in the room. The writer, where, you've got to raise your hand and let us, where is he? Mark St. Germain is right here. Yeah. And um, 
If you haven't seen the play, I don't know why you're applauding, because it might not be that good. But, uh, but the good news is that, uh, that Mark and Lauren are talking, even as I'm uh, giving my speech. It's, uh, oh, don't let it happen again. Get out. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, it is a great play. And I'm a writer and very critical. And if it was a good play, I, I wouldn't say that it was a great play. It's great. It's amazing. And so what we've been doing with Socrates in the City the last two events is we thought, let's do a special Socrates event where we kind of take over the theater and, uh, you know, have wine and hors d'oeuvres beforehand, go to the theater, watch this terrific play. Uh, we've done this twice. And then have a Q&A after the play uh, where I get up on the stage with Mark and uh, the two, uh, his two creations, uh, these actors. Uh, you didn't create the actors, just the characters, right? Okay, good. Uh, and, uh, and we get to sort of have this wonderful Q&A in typical Socrates fashion. But it's been really delightful. We've done it twice. We're thinking of doing it again on May 22nd. We're not sure. But th that has just been so terrific. And that's uh, part of the reason why we haven't had these um, sort of more typical Socrates uh, events. Um, also, uh, I've been very busy. I have been working on a Socrates in the City book about which I am tremendously excited. I have to tell you, when I have gone over the talks that we've had, and basically what it is is we take 10 sort of representative talks. I wouldn't say that they're the best talks. They're sort of the best 10 that kind of fit in a book format because we've had some terrific talks that don't really translate so well onto the page. But as I read through these things, I think, my goodness, what uh, we've accomplished over 10 years, what tremendous speakers we have had, and the very fact that we get to share this with a wider audience in book form, uh, with a lot of my stupid jokes up front, obviously, uh, but we're going to try to edit those out. But I mean, it really, uh, it, I have to tell you, I am so excited about this. The book will be coming out in the fall, um, but uh, we've been spending a lot of time on that, and that's another reason we've been a little bit um, busy. Um, we are also, but we, there's other things happening. We are going to begin live streaming these events, not tonight's event. There's still plenty of seats uh, up front here, if you can't see. Those are the ones with no people in them. Um, if, um, but we have live streaming. Uh, we're going to live stream these events, basically, so that people in other parts of the world can uh, participate, can, can be here uh, without the perspiration. Uh, is there, can we open up the windows? Is there anybody who knows uh, how to make It's hot in here, isn't it? It's not just me. It's hot. Um, um, well, yeah, I can't really speak and open windows at the same time, so maybe someone will uh, thank you. Yes, uh, somebody, if you could just open a window or, or do something or get a bucket of ice and, and come back. Um, but anyway, uh, I was going to say that our next big event, this is, this is a real coup for us, I think, on June 23rd, we are going to uh, have Dick Cavett as our special guest. Uh, he's come to a number of Socrates events. He was just at the uh, Freud's Last Session play a couple of weeks ago. But he's written a book uh, where he sort of reminisces about his experiences uh, uh, over the years. And I'm going to interview him, Dick Cavett style, how strange. Uh, I'm going to interview him on, on the uh, subject of celebrity, fame, and other genuinely small topics. Uh, so that's going to be June 23rd. It's going to be at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. I am so excited about this. Uh, so I want you to mark that down on your calendars, June 23rd, and we will live stream that to the world. Um, all right, so at last we come uh, to our speaker for the evening. If he's, is he still here? Dr. Westfall, are you here? You're still here. Good, I'm glad, because... People have left during those introductions for many, for many reasons, many reasons. Um, okay. 
Merrill Westfall is a distinguished professor of philosophy at Fordham University. His research and writing are focused upon modern continental philosophy with a particular emphasis on the historical development and systematic integrity of individual thinkers, their dialogue and debate with one another, and their contributions to the philosophy of religion, political philosophy, and aesthetics. And by the way, I'm doing my PhD on that sentence. I just wanted to tell you. Uh, if anybody knows what that means, you can leave, I think. Um, but I think he may unpack some of that this evening. I, I, I've always loved philosophy, or I should say, to be more accurate, I've always pretended to love philosophy. Um, you know, obviously, being Greek, uh, we, we barred the name Socrates uh, in the city. Uh, originally, you probably wouldn't know this, it was going to be Donald Trump in the city. Uh, but he, thre he threatened to sue us. But, uh, you know, as long as it was a fa I just wanted a famous name. So that's why we picked Socrates. We really don't care about philosophy. But... Um, I have to say, in my freshman year in college, you know, in a survey course, philosophy, I, I never really got much past Thales. Okay, the three educated people can leave. Uh, yeah, by the sound of the crickets, I can tell that, uh, that most of you never got two Thales. Uh, Thales, for those of you who didn't know, was a pre-Socratic. But don't feel bad if you didn't know he was a pre-Socratic, because I'm pretty sure that Thales didn't know it himself. Yeah, you think about that. Um, but anyway, every now and again, you know, to educate ourselves, we have some brilliant philosopher. And tonight, Dr. Westfall is the best we could do, and I apologize in advance. Uh, he is, he's a summa cum laude graduate of Wheaton College. Hey, Wheaton. All right. This is the only room in Manhattan that has ever applauded Wheaton. That's fa fascinating. If you go on the street, no one's heard of it. Uh, he was a Woodrow Wilson Fellow at Yale University, where he earned a Ph.D. in philosophy in 1966. He began his teaching career at Wheaton, then joined the Yale philosophy faculty. He's also taught at SUNY Purchase and chaired the philosophy department at Hope College for nine years. And he came to Fordham as a professor of philosophy in 1987. He served as the university's director of graduate studies for five years, was named to his present position in 1997. That's the distinguished part. So you've only been distinguished for low these 14 years. Am I right? Is that when you grew the beard? That's what happens. I know. Gives you that gravitas. Um, well, so he's been a visiting professor at Juniata College, Loyola College in Maryland, Villanova, Harvard Divinity School, as well as an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He served as president of the Hegel Society of America and the Soren Kierkegaard Society. All these people are trying to get into those societies, and now they know that they've got an in with you. Uh, he's also served as executive co-director of the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy. Are you the only member of that, and you gave yourself that title? I can't believe the very idea. Executive co-director. There's two directors. There's two directors. Just imagine. Just imagine. There's two directors and one member. Um, that's unbelievable. Uh, he's also a recipient of the Aquinas Medal presented by the University of Dallas. He's lectured widely around the world. He's the author of many books, including two studies of Hegel, three studies of Kierkegaard, and four studies of the 1970s mime duo Shields and Yarnell. That's very counterintuitive, uh, Dr. Westfall, I have to say. Shields and Yarnell. Um, in all uh, seriousness, his books have won many awards. I can't list them all here. Here's one. He's written something called God, Guilt, and Death. That's some light summer reading there. God, <laughs> God, Guilt, and Death, an Existential Phenomenology of Religion, a Philosophy of Religion text that deals with central problems of human existence that won an American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence. He's also the author of the book we're going to hear about tonight, Suspicion and Faith, 
The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism, which is an examination of the critiques of Christianity by Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. I'm very much looking forward to, to that. It won a Critics Choice Book Award from Christianity Today. Um, most recently, he's written a book titled Whose Community, Which Interpretation, Philosophical Hermeneutics for the Church, an Exposition of Current Philosophical Thinking Related to Biblical Interpretation, which was published by Baker Academic last year. Dr. Westfall lives in Rockland County, not very far from here, with his wife, who is an ordained Protestant minister. They have two grown children and two grandchildren. Uh, because Dr. Westfall is having some serious back issues, which the surgeon is going to remedy soon, he's going to be sitting on a bar stool here. So that's why he's going to be doing that. But let me tell you, we are very excited to have Dr. Westfall here. Please join me in giving a warm Socrates welcome to Dr. Merrill Westfall. about the back is an excuse. I, I sit on a bar stool because that's where I spend most of my time. <laughs> Eric has always thought of himself as a stand-up comedian. I'm a sit-down tragedy <laughs> about to happen. Get out your hankies. I am delighted uh, to be with you this evening, um, and perhaps some of you too, once upon a time, did Philosophy 101 and encountered Socrates and his most famous saying that the unexamined life is not worth living. I hope Eric won't excommunicate me immediately if I call attention to the irony uh, that associates itself with that statement it is probably the most unexamined statement in the history of Western <laughs> philosophy. And only the slightest examination of it reveals to you that it is simply false. I'm thinking of my aunt and uncle, who um, got as, as far as high school, but no farther. I'm not even sure my aunt graduated from high school. They worked their whole lives at Western Electric. They were loyal members of their church. They took their politics and their religion as it was taught to them by whoever it was who was teaching when they were coming around. Um, so far as I can tell, they were as unreflective as two people can be. They were loyal Americans, hard workers, faithful believers, and their life was eminently worth living. Socrates was just wrong. But. Self-examination can be a very good thing, even if it isn't absolutely essential to the good life. And especially at Passover season, if one is Jewish, or during Lent, if one is Christian. Lent is a lot longer than Passover. Uh, apparently, the assumption is Christians have more to repent of. <laughs> <clears throat> and one needs um, help in self-examination. If we just look at ourselves, we're not likely to see what we don't want to see, and that's probably what we most need to see. And, and sometimes the helper um, is a therapist. And sometimes the helper is 
um, a confessor or a spiritual director. Um, in my case, uh, the helper is most often uh, my wife. Um, but tonight I want to suggest as helpers in the process of self-examination on the part of the faithful, of those who count themselves as believers, those whom I take to be the three most widely influential atheists of the last couple centuries, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. How did I get interested in them? Uh, it's a strange story. Uh, so far as I can tell, um, I didn't read any of them with any seriousness, if at all, as an undergraduate. They weren't particularly welcome at Wheaton. Uh, in graduate school and in my early teaching days, I found myself reading them more and more, drawn to them, finding excuses to put them into courses that I taught. And eventually, I created a course in which we did nothing but read Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. And out of that course grew the book Suspicion and Faith, The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism, which is about that unholy trinity, but has the title The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism. Why was I drawn to them? It wasn't because of an incipient atheism or a growing doubt about my faith. It was because what I saw in their critique of religion uh, in, in general and of Christianity in particular was that it was all too true all too much of the time. And the second thing I saw was that it didn't have any close conceptual tie to their atheism. In fact, um, I ended up accusing them of plagiarism on the grounds that some of their most fundamental critiques have antecedents um, in the Hebrew prophets and in the Jesus who's presented to us uh, in the Gospels. Um, and so... Um, I wrote this book, and the uh, title of the first chapter was Atheism for Lent. Um, letting those three atheists be the helpers in a period of self-examination during a Lenten um, period. And from time to time, uh, to my amazement, I've heard that churches um, have uh, put together a, a, a Lenten study program over the period of Lent. Um, derived from uh, the book or the ideas in it or, or reading it. Just three weeks ago, I was invited up to a Presbyterian church uh, in Upper Westchester um, uh, to um, preach. I'm a layperson. I, I don't get often a chance to preach, and there's already one preacher in our family. Um, but uh, they had taken Atheism for Lent as their Lenten theme. And they had two reading groups reading the book, one during the daytime and one in the evening. And they wanted me to come up and discuss the book with them. And they figured while I was there, they might as well get a sermon out of me. Um, so they did. Um, but I, I, I want to try to make uh, as much sense as I can of this notion that um, atheists, these particular atheists, um, can be a help to religious self-examination. And in order to do that, I need to distinguish two kinds of atheism. One kind I'll call evidential atheism. And the question there is whether religion, or some particular religious beliefs, are true or false, whether there's enough evidence to show that they're true or false, uh, evidence to show that they're true, or evidence to show that they're false. Or short of that, um, 
whether it would be rational under some circumstances to believe. It is sometimes rational to believe things that are false. A six-year-old child who believes what um, his or her parents tell about the tooth fairy is not acting irrationally, although the belief uh, is false. So uh, rationality turns out to be person-relative, situation-relative. Um, it might be rational for me to believe something that's not rational for you to believe something because we're in different situations with reference um, to that. Anyway, that's not the kind of atheism that Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud are concerned with. They don't ever bother trying to show that God is dead. They just proclaim it. They just presuppose it and go on from there. They're always preaching to the choir. Um, their atheism uh, is best identified with the word suspicion. And suspicion directs itself not to the content of the beliefs, but to the mode of believing. Um, I'll read a definition of um, the theory of suspicion. Um, and uh, you can write another doctoral dissertation on this sentence, if you like. <laughs> then I'll give you some very ordinary examples, and I'll come back and read the definition again and hope that the second time it makes more sense. It's the attempt to expose the self-deception. That's the key term, self-deception. Um, involved in hiding our actual motives from ourselves so as not to notice how and how much our behavior and our beliefs are shaped by values that we profess to disown. The criteria are not externally imposed upon us. They're criteria that we profess ourselves. So take Freud's interpretation of dreams. Um, Freud distinguishes in dreams between the manifest content and the latent content. The manifest content is what the dream appears to be about. And my wife asked me, did you, what did you dream last night? And I said, well, I had this dream about my uncle, and we were here and doing that and so forth. It doesn't make any sense. When it's interpreted in a Freudian context, it turns out to have a deeper meaning. Um, in the case I'm thinking of, that I have a, uh, an angry, resentful hostility towards someone whom I profess to love and respect. Now that goes against my grain. I don't want to admit to myself that that's what I think about this uncle. And so I disguise it from myself, I deceive myself, and I present that to myself in a disguised manner um, in my dream. Or here's an example from Nietzsche. I hear you say, ich bin gerecht, but it sounds to me as if you said, ich bin gerecht. Uh, even if my German were better and your ear were better, you'd have a hard time hearing the difference between the one that's spelled with an E and the one that's spelled with an A umlaut. But one of them means I've had justice done, and the other one means I've had revenge. Now, I don't want to think of myself as a vengeful person. And so I will talk about justice. But suspicion suspects that while I'm talking about justice, what's really going on underneath the latent content is a spirit of revenge. 
And here is my absolute favorite example. It comes from that great philosophical text, The Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> Frederick has been um, apprenticed to a pirate by mistake. Uh, he's doing R&R on the Cornish beach. And all of a sudden, this bevy of beautiful young maidens who turn out to be the daughters of the modern major general appear. And he is knocked off his feet. He's never seen anything like that. And so he sings to them, Oh, is there not a maiden breast that does not feel the moral beauty of making worldly interest subordinate to sense of duty? Who would not willingly give up all matrimonial ambition to rescue such a one as I from his unfortunate position. And then the chorus comes in. I promise not to sing anymore. From his unfortunate position. And all the young ladies are properly trained Victorian young women. No, 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 I have nothing to do with that. Except for Mabel. And Mabel appears, and she has the most beautiful voice. And if the casting director is lucky, she's the most beautiful of all the beautiful young ladies. And she says to her sisters, oh, for shame, you have no pity. You have no compassion. You should see the situation differently. Now, notice what's happening here. He's been reading Kant all the time on the pirate ship. And so he puts his appeal in the language of duty. And she's been reading Aristotle. And so she puts her appeal in the language of virtue, pity, and compassion. For both of them, the discourse takes place on the lofty la level of moral discourse. And the sisters are not fooled for one minute. He is a hunk, and she is a babe. And the sisters say to each other, and I won't sing this for you, I promised. <laughs> The question is, had he not been a thing of beauty, would she be moved by quite so keen a sense of duty? <laughs> That's the hermeneutics of <clears throat> suspicion in a nutshell. Now let me give you the definition again. It's the deliberate attempt to expose the self-deception involved in hiding our actual motives from ourselves so as not to notice how and how much our behavior and our beliefs are shaped by values we profess to disown. Resentment, revenge instead of justice. Sex appeal as opposed to virtue uh, and duty. Now let me call your attention to the logic of the situation when suspicion takes place. In the first place, the beliefs that I hold and can be um, challenged with suspicion aren't necessarily false. I have a colleague whom I very much dislike. I'm jealous of him. He's been recognized and honored in ways that I think take credit away from me and I, I can't stand his guts. And a, a third colleague comes along who's known to be a totally unreliable gossip monger and tells me a juicy bit about this second person, and I believe it immediately. 
If you knew all that, you'd say to me, shame on you. And you'd be right. But of course, that juicy bit of gossip might be true. The fact that my believing is bad doesn't mean that the belief is false. And that has this interesting consequence. Truth is no defense against suspicion. If somebody comes along and is suspicious of the motives that lead me to hold certain beliefs or suspicious of the function that they play in my life, uh, it's no defense for me to try to say, yeah, but they're true, even if I could somehow show that. Because what suspicion suspects is entirely compatible with the beliefs being true. It's about how I hold them and not about what I hold. Another thing to observe about this situation is that uh, it's very easy to play the two quoque game. That's Latin for it takes one to no one. Um, Freud says religious belief is so childish. We want a heavenly father to take care of us. And we're not willing to stand on our own in a, in a tough world. And the believer can turn around and say, Freud's atheism is so adolescent. He's in that phase where he's absolutely unwilling to acknowledge any authority over him. He insists on being absolutely his own boss, and it's time for him to grow up uh, out of this adolescent phase. Huh. Both of those may be right about particular believers and unbelievers, um, and they don't settle the question. Here's what uh, Paul Ricoeur, the uh, French, late French philosopher, says about Freud and psychoanalysis. But it could be said about all three of our atheists. He says, psychoanalysis is necessarily iconoclastic regardless of the faith or non-faith of the psychoanalyst. It's going to be suspicious and it's going to, be, it's going to un uncover some things that you'd rather not have uncovered. But this destruction of religion can be the counterpoint of a faith purified of all idolatry. Psychoanalysis as such cannot go beyond the necessary necessity of iconoclasm. This necessity is open to a double possibility, that of faith and of non-faith. But the decision about these two possibilities does not rest with psychoanalysis. The question remains open for everyone whether the destruction of idols is without remainder. This question no longer falls within the competence of psychoanalysis. And that's, it seems to me, the logic of the situation um, that we're talking about uh, tonight. Now, one other thing about the, the logic of suspicion is uh, that it's very easy to practice it on them and very hard to practice it on us, much less me. Republicans don't find it hard to say about Democrats, oh, they're just playing politics. And Democrats don't find it hard to say about Republicans, oh, they're just playing politics. That's not a serious policy proposal. They're just grandstanding to a particular portion of the electorate. And of course, they both might be right um, uh, in that situation. Um, but the suggestion that I want to leave um, eventually is that um, we take advantage of that asymmetry get really good at suspicion, practicing it on them, whoever they are politically or religiously or whatever. 
And once we've gotten really good at it, then do it, practice it on ourselves. You know, be careful who you point the finger at, because there are always three of them pointing back at you. Um, that's a hard transition to make, but it's the, it's the transition that would make it worthwhile for believers to have uh, this kind of atheism as a help for Lenten um, self-examination. There is biblical warrant for it. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart, as if the psalmist feels unable to know himself. Paul says that in, in unrighteousness we suppress the truth. That's almost Freudian language. Repression, suppression. Um, we're, we're almost home there. <clears throat> so let's, let's take a look at our three uh, atheists and just the slightest, shortest sample of the kind of thing they do. And that early on I found myself saying, that's all too true, all too much of the time. Freud says that religious beliefs are like dreams. And dreams, adult dreams, he says, are disguised wish fulfillments. The one I mentioned. I have this hostility toward my uncle, uh, and I disguise it by telling the story to myself in a way that doesn't allow me to see what's really going on. Um, um, so uh, religious beliefs, he says, are disguised wish fulfillments. What do I wish for? I wish for a big daddy in the sky who will protect me, uh, who's more powerful than I am and who can um, ward off those threats to my existence which are so powerful, so far as the natural order is concerned, the most powerful of which is death. And so I want a heavenly father who can give me eternal life. Society places uh, terrible constraints upon my id, which is really quite amoral. And so I want a Heavenly Father who is forgiving. Um, at the same time, I want a Heavenly Father who is very just and even angry when it comes to dealing with my enemies. I don't want a whole lot of forgiveness for them. I want them to get their due. Um, this is the God I would like to believe in. And voila, Freud says, if you look closely, you'll discover that uh, at the heart of Judeo-Christian religious belief, uh, is a picture of a God who is all too often, all too much, just like that. Religion has uh, lofty language to describe this, righteousness and justice and mercy and judgment and, and um, uh, so forth. Um, but Freud's suggestion is that uh, often the use of religious language functions to disguise from ourselves the role God is allowed to play in our lives. So that however orthodox our beliefs may be, according to whatever standard of orthodoxy happens to be operative, and however appropriate our uh, religious practices are, according to the religious community that we are a member of, they are in the service of these um, self-interests uh, which I have to hide from myself because if I allowed myself to see them, I would be ashamed. Augustine says this better than Freud even. 
In the Confessions, Augustine says to God, I took myself and put myself behind myself so that I could not see myself and see what a mess I was. You took me and put me in front of myself so that I could see who I was and turn to you for mercy and grace. Um, in that case, the, the therapist, the helper, was, was directly um, God, and I don't know what kind of couch um, Augustine was uh, sitting on. Uh, Marx sees uh, religion as a part of the larger project of ideology critique. We use the term ideology in a very broad sense to refer to any semi-coherent body of social and political beliefs. Um, and we call someone an ideologue if they sort of mechanically follow some set of beliefs and don't pay much attention to the nitty-gritty realities of the actual circumstances. Marx uses the term ideology in a narrower sense. He uses the term for any body of ideas, including moral and religious ideas, whose primary function is to legitimize the status quo, the current arrangement of things. And so he says twice with his co-writer Engels, the ruling ideas of every epoch are the ideas of the ruling class. He thinks it's not an accident. And in the case of religious ideas, um, he thinks this works two ways. He thinks that the beneficiaries of the status quo need religious ideas to salve their otherwise bad conscience by persuading them that the current social order is divinely ordained. And he thinks that those on the bottom of the, of the heap need religion to tell them um, to be patient, uh, not to be uh, hostile, um, to think about Beulah land where all God's children got shoes, because in this world all, all God's children don't got shoes and shouldn't expect to have them anytime soon. Uh, a, a double legitimizing of the social uh, order. Um, closer to home, uh, we can think of slavery in the United States, of uh, the Jim Crow um, South that followed slavery for so long, for apartheid in South Africa. And you'll recall that in each of those cases, the primary justification for those forms of social oppression was a particular interpretation of the Christian faith. This social order in which whites were on top and blacks were subordinate to them was divinely ordained. That's very comforting if you're white. And if, they can, if you can be persuaded of that, if you're black, that'll keep you uh, from being too uh, much of a ruckus. Now, there's another side of the coin. Those who opposed slavery, or to start um, where we have to start with Wilberforce and his crew in England opposing the slave trade, if you haven't read Eric's biography of William Wilberforce, read that before you read anything else. It's a wonderful book, and it's wonderfully written, and he didn't pay me for this commercial. <laughs> he did pay me for this next one. That's his Bonhoeffer book. <clears throat> They're both uh, marvelous treats for which we are um, indebted. But you see, Marx tells a story that's only half the story. On the one hand, religious people use their religion to perpetuate social injustice. 
glaringly, shamelessly. On the other hand, adherence to the same religion, we're talking primarily here about Christianity in, in all of these cases, adherence of the same religion were the ones who played a leading role in overturning those social injustices. So Marx hasn't told the whole story. He only tells one side of the story. And this is where you can play the two quoque game. Marx, hey, you forgot about the other part of the story. The problem with that is the part of the story that he tells has been and continues to be all too true all too much of the time. And if believers take Jesus seriously when he says worry about the log that's in your own eye before you worry about the speck that's in somebody else's eye, we'll worry about the part of Marx that's true before we worry about the part that he leaves out. We won't forget about the part that he leaves out. We'll, we'll recognize that he doesn't tell us the whole story. But there's one other problem with Marx's analysis. He's a plagiarist. There ought to be some footnotes to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea and uh, several other of the uh, Hebrew prophets and Jesus, for sure. Um, who was uh, certainly one of the Hebrew prophets. Christians think uh, Jesus was more than that, but certainly not less than that. Um, but uh, part of the reason why I take so seriously the critiques of Marx and Nietzsche and Freud is that I can find for all of them biblical antecedents. So there is a sense in which my atheist helpers are calling my attention to parts of my own biblical heritage that I might otherwise prefer not to notice, at least not to notice too often. Every religious community has a canon within a canon. Um, and it's, it's easy to leave out those parts of the canon that would leave me most uncomfortable if I took them seriously. And what Marx and Nietzsche and Freud uh, each do for me is to make it harder for me to do that. I'm pretty skillful at that sort of thing, so I won't say they make it impossible for me to do that. But they do make it harder. Um, what about Nietzsche? Um, I already gave you the one example. Nietzsche thinks that um, the dominant morality and religion of the West, namely Christianity or Judeo-Christian thinking, um, is rooted in the revenge of the weak. Um, but uh, one of the most devastating ways in which he expresses this is to suggest that when the weak are oppressed and they can't fight back because they're weak, if they were militarily or physically or politically or economically or in some other way strong enough to fight back, they would. But then they wouldn't be the weak. But if they're weak, they can't fight back. And so the only thing they can do is call their oppressors evil. They have this one weapon, and they invent the concept of evil in order to tag their opponents with this name. You are evil. And of course, uh, one of the things that's just as uh, untrue as that the unexamined life is not worth living is the old adage, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but ugly words don't hurt me. Ugly words do hurt and uh, we defend ourselves against them uh, all the time. Now, the, 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 the bite about this comes this way. 
the way it works with good and evil, if we, whoever we may be, band together and call them whoever they may be, I think, think politics here, think religion here, think morality and ethics here, if we decide that they are evil, that's good. We get a little comfort from that. But the major comfort we get from it is that we become good by default. We aren't like them. They're evil. We must be good. Think through the history of the Cold War in these terms, where the two sides kept calling each other evil and persuading themselves that nothing they did was evil because they were evil and we must be good. Uh, an authentically biblical thought would think that all are sinners and uh, it doesn't work quite that easily, but suspicion suspects that when we call others evil, we'll be doing it in order to make ourselves um, good by default. So I conclude with the words of a hymn that might be um, part of one's personal devotions if one took atheism for Lent in the sense in which I've suggested it seriously. The first time I ran across these words, although I've been thinking along these lines for some time, they shocked me that anybody would put them into the words of a hymn, but here they are. Not for our sins alone, thy mercy, Lord, we sue. Let fall thy pitying grace on our devotions, too. What we have done for thee and what we think to do. The holiest hours we spend in prayer upon our knees, the time when most we deem our songs of praise will please. Thou searcher of all hearts, forgiveness pour on these. And all the gifts we bring and all the vows we make and all the acts of love we plan for thy dear sake, into thy pardoning thought, O God, in mercy take. Bow down thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see. Our very love is shame, and we must come to thee to make it of thy grace what thou wouldst have us be. For me, Marx and Nietzsche and Freud have helped me to understand how religion can be a work of the flesh and how this might be an appropriate prayer of confession in a Lenten season or in any season. Thank you, Dr. Westfall. Uh, as you all know, or most of you know, we now come to the truly fun part where you get to ask questions uh, of our distinguished speaker. Uh, the only problem with that is that you have to make your way to one of the uh, several microphones, or maybe there's only one microphone today. You can't use this microphone. That would be awkward. So uh, we're going to ask you to go to that microphone and um, we have, uh, let's see, we always try to leave ample time for Q&A, so we've got, uh, yeah, about 20 minutes or so. Uh, so anybody who'd like to ask a question, Mr. Drago, do, do I have that right? If you'd like to ask the first question. And let me say this again, just in case anybody uh, missed it the first time. Please, very important, these are the rules, ground rules, please frame your question in the form of a question. Okay? Th thank you. And 14 syllables, go. If there are any lawyers here, that might be difficult. Uh, 
lawyers in the courtroom are fond of making speeches and having to be told by the judge to ask a question. Uh, generation upon generation has always interpreted the scripture as understanding precisely what God's will was for our lives. However, in retrospect, we've seen that they've misinterpreted based on looking at our current way of, of the scripture. How can I be assured today that when I read the scripture, I understand what God's will is for my life? <clears throat> one of my favorite philosophers is Soren Kierkegaard, and one of his definitions of faith is an objective uncertainty appropriated with passion. Um, and I think the, the, the short answer is um, you can't be certain in an objective sense. That is to say, um, there isn't some neutral uh, place where one can be outside of all of the contingencies which go into forming us and making us the people that we are, um, whereby we could weigh the evidence um, and so forth. Um, and so it, with, with regard to the question of uh, what I should believe or your question, what is God's will for my life, what I should be doing, um, I believe uh, it's possible to have a confidence that we are following God's lead, but not possible to have an absolute certainty. And um, I think that's biblical. We walk by faith and not by sight. And faith has to do with the things that we can't see. And it's important that uh, even though we can't see everything we would like to be able to see um, um, and have the kinds of guarantees that we would like to have, um, God invites us like Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water. And Peter did for a while. And then all of a sudden he realized he had to have some guarantees that he could do this after he'd done it for a while. And about that time, he began to sink because the guarantees weren't there. Um, so um, the, the little book that, that uh, was referred to at the very end, uh, Whose Community, Which Interpretation, suggests that um, the interpretation of the Bible will always be a matter of disagreement and uh, discussion and conflict among people who are equally committed to its um, divine origin and authority, um, and that's what it is to be human beings, um, to walk by faith um, and not by sight, and to make the best judgments we're capable of, uh, getting help from people whose judgment we trust and so forth. If we should make religious use out of the new atheists um, today, like Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, or Christopher Hitchens, then would you categorize them as evidential atheists or suspicious atheists? A, a little bit of both, but primarily evidential atheists. And um, I, so, far, so far as I can tell, there isn't anything new about them. Uh, they are um, resurfacing uh, arguments that have been around for a long time. Um, but um, uh, one of the, the most important arguments, and it's, it's one that seems to me ought to be taken seriously, is look at all the bad things religious people do. And 
that's all too true all too much of the time. Now, it's easy to see that with regard to Islamic fundamentalists. It's much harder to see that with regard to whatever our own uh, political community is or our own uh, religious community is. But the challenge is, is to do the hard work and not the easy work. I think my question's sort of been asked, but maybe I'll ask it in a different way. I, I was thinking of the scientific atheists, particularly Richard Dawkins. Um, do you see, I guess, evidential atheism would be what you would call that. Do you think that there's anything particularly new, um, or how would you look at them um, if you were to look at them in these frameworks uh, today? Because it seems to me they're, what they're espousing is another religion, uh, there is a, 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 an atheism that becomes um, the religion of the atheist. Uh, it's um, something held with passion, and it, it governs the, uh, the whole uh, life. Uh, the doctor who's about to uh, operate on my back in a couple of weeks uh, found it necessary to tell me yesterday that he's an atheist. <laughs> I have no idea why. He, he felt that urge, but um, that, that may be his, his religion. Um, the problem with the, the kind of argument that um, uh, atheists give to try to disprove the existence of God and that theists give to try to prove the existence of God or immortality is that they always have some presuppositions. And if you grant the presuppositions, then maybe you can make some headway towards the conclusion. But getting those presuppositions off the ground um, is, is not always obvious. For example, um, a, a lot of evidential atheism presupposes, and, and Freud is a good example of this, by the way. Uh, he's also suspicion, but uh, uh, once in a while he talks like an evidential atheist. If you assume that the only reliable knowledge of reality that we have is what comes to us from the quantitative experimental sciences, then you're not going to find God, and you're not going to find resurrection, and you're not going to find incarnation, and you're not going to find atonement, you're not going to find covenant. Um, um, but you've already begged that question at the outset by assuming that the only knowledge of reality that we can have uh, comes to us from the experimental quantitative sciences. How would you prove that claim? And way back in the, in the 30s and 40s when logical positivism was the rage operating on that assumption, it suddenly dawned on them, the logical positivists, that that claim was not a scientific claim. That physics couldn't establish that the only knowledge of reality we have is from the physical sciences. That chemistry couldn't establish that. That biology couldn't establish that. And one philosopher got honest enough to say, well, what's the status of that claim? It's our policy. It's our policy. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, a lot of our beliefs stem from what have become our policies. Um, and we, we can examine those. We can subject them to criticism um, and so forth. Um, but um, 
the idea that there's this neutral standpoint, which has so nicely been called the view from nowhere, um, it, it seems to me is a myth that we uh, ought to dispense with. We're always somewhere. We're always pre-committed. And those pre-commitments shape our thinking processes. Thank you, Professor. Very provocative talk. Um, I take your point when you say that these three thinkers um, were very good at critiquing the inconsistencies, you know, the moral inconsistencies and the hypocrisies of the Christians. But, of course, they did a lot more than that. And it seems to me that they were as incensed by or revolted by the faithful Christians as they were the unfaithful Christians. So, for example, the ethic uh, of Christianity, what's at the ethical core? There's a lot of ways we could talk about it, but certainly the Sermon on the Mount is not a bad place to start. The meek shall inherit the earth. Nietzsche despised that. Why do you think he did? I mean, what do you make of that? The meek shall inherit the earth as kind of the ethical core, despised by Freud, despised by Nietzsche. Well, Nietzsche says, look, uh, there are masters and slaves. Um, and slaves learn to be meek. Uh, the cost-benefit analysis of not being meek um, is pretty obvious. Um, and if you want to survive, and if you want to uh, avoid the, the lash, um, then you're meek. So why not have a religion that tells you that the meek will inherit the earth? That's very comforting. That's very reassuring. That tells you that we are God's people. We, the weak, the slaves, are God's people. Um, but that's just wishful thinking that is, on the one hand, resentful. It's a cover. It sounds like a moral ideal, but it's a cover for resentment against the strong. Um, it's a cover for calling them evil. So as to say, well, we aren't like them. We're meek, so we must be good. Um, so I get a lot of existential affirmation from, from talking that way. Um, even if my meekness is a matter of making a virtue of necessity. Uh, Professor, um, in the process of self-examination and self-critique, I'm wondering how we uh, differentiate between motivations which are acceptable and those which aren't good motivations. You and my predecessor cited Nietzsche, who talks about the spirit of revenge as the motivation of religion. We might say that if we find the spirit of revenge in ourselves, we don't admit those portions of our reasoning which are derived from that. But a lot of religious people say, for example, they want to be a part of something or they want to be part of a community. That's a less sort of morally bad motivation. Can you admit the motivation to want to have a basis of morality, the motivation to be, want to be part of a community? Is there a hygienic function by which we differentiate motivations? The desire to be part of a community is so general, so abstract, that one couldn't say that it's either in itself good or bad. Um, the devil is in the details. Um, do I want to be a part of a community that um, calls them evil in order that we can bask in our goodness? Well, on the analysis that uh, I've been suggesting, that that's problematic. Um, do, do I want to be a part of a community that recognizes that we too are wounded and broken and um, sinful um, and in need of forgiveness and of finding ways to share that forgiveness um, in the world, that might be a different story. Um, and my own view 
and, and I don't know that there's either philosophical or biblical warrant for it in any knockdown sense, is that um, none of us are ever coherent. That our motives are always mixed. There's always a little of this and a little of that. Um, and the process of sorting out the good from the bad um, is uh, the task of a lifetime. Um, and the, the process of nourishing the good and reducing and trying to eliminate the bad is the task of a lifetime. But I don't see any problem with the notion that... Um, um, take, take, the, take my three atheists, um, that there were things about their atheism that they should have been ashamed of by their own criteria. And on the other hand, from a moral point of view, and even from a religious point of view, things that they can rightly be proud of. Mark speaks in the tradition of Amos, and that's a good thing. There's that, that uh, muddy mixture that makes us the curious critters we are. Okay, granted that our motives are important and granted that the way we put our faith into practice is important and the atheists use that against us. Nonetheless, is not the crucial question whether it's all true or not. And if that, if that is so, is it sufficient evidence to say that the one solitary life sort of says it all, that... How do you get Christianity off the back of a three-year ministry when he had to walk everywhere and had nothing going for him? Yeah, I think I don't buy the notion that what it's really finally all about is, is having the truth. Um, I think truth is important. I think we ought to try to have our beliefs as nearly true as is possible for human beliefs to be. Um, I think the only real truth is God's truth, and our task is to approximate that. And I don't think that we ever do more than approximate that, at least in this life. Um, but um, w what good is it to have the Nicene Creed all properly dotted and crossed and so forth, um, and be a, a, a slave owner or the, the captain of a slave ship, um, treating God's creatures as if they were uh, animals or treating them worse than I would treat uh, animals on my farm if I were a farmer. Um, it, it's possible, um, I think, to have the truth in that sense of the term and still be in the untruth so far as my life is concerned. Um, if uh, the way in which I'm acting and treating um, my fellow humans is uh, itself an abomination um, to God. So one of the things, that, the reason I mentioned Amos probably more than anybody else of the Old Testament prophets is that a lot of the Old Testament prophets, um, can I say they bitched? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> about the fact that the covenant people of God went, went off and worshipped idols, worshipped the, the gods of the pagan countries around them. And they were constantly complaining about, about that. 
Um, Amos, in particular, focuses on the worship that the covenant people of God brought to the sanctuaries where Yahweh was worshipped, to the festivals where, where the right worship was going on, to the right God. And it's a really scary book. I, I dare you to read it if you haven't read it recently. Not until you've read uh, Eric. <clears throat> um, but Amos has God saying, I cannot stand your worship. Take it away from me. And there's nothing about their worship that is liturgically or theologically problematic except for the belief that that God is tolerant of those social practices. And when those two are brought together, the God who brought us, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is tolerant of the way in which we oppress the poor, the way we are indifferent to the plight of the poor, that God is an idol. That God is created in the image of God. Theologically, it would seem that everything is in order, but there's that one little fly in the ointment that spoils everything. So years ago when I was talking about this book with uh, some college students in Minnesota, um, <clears throat> they do read in Minnesota, <clears throat> Uh, I, I said, um, I think that I have never prayed to a God who wasn't an idol. And I could see the look of horror in their faces. And I went on to explain. I said, I, I think the God who hears my prayers is not an idol. I think that God is the maker of heaven and earth. But I think God, as I represent God to myself, is always to some degree an edited God. I don't create God out of whole cloth. I take huge chunks of orthodoxy and um, um, edit them to uh, my convenience. And I don't claim to be creative. I, I say that most of this editing has been done by the communities which have helped shape me, that, that I'm not some religious genius who's invented God uh, uh, on his own. But I suspect that in ways that I'm never fully aware of, um, the, the God I think I'm praying to um, has been contaminated in the kinds of ways that Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud are trying to, uh, to tell us about. And so uh, if you heard the words of that hymn, um, there was reference to idolatry there. And in the passage I read from Paul Ricoeur, he talked about a faith purified of idolatry. That, that, that the purpose of suspicion from a believer's point of view, the religious uses of modern atheism, would be to try to purify our faith um, of the idolatry that contaminate the, even the most orthodox orthodoxy. Thank you. Thanks, doctor. Uh, it seems that their criticism uh, is sort of rooted in how we treat others particularly the poor, particularly those not in power. And the prophets that you named, that was one of their chief criticisms as well of the powerful, of how they treat the poor and so forth. So as you continue to use uh, uh, that, these uh, 
three as as helps in terms of uh, our reflection and and um, ability to be better Christians. How do you? How would you say um, their criticism would would be true today, and how the church, particularly in the U.S., is operating? If that makes any sense. Yeah, the, the the first thing I want to say there is that I don't think there is just one way right. in which faith can can be corrupted. I don't think it's just a matter of the relationship of the rich to the poor. Um, in Nietzsche, it's from the bottom up. It's the relationship of the weak to the strong that's the problem, not not the oppression that's coming down from the strong to the weak. And um, in Freud, it's um, my relationship to my, to my own self, to the, the various parts of myself, my, the way I manage the relationship between my id and my superego and so forth. Um, so I, I, I take these three as, as paradigms um, which uh, could lead us to find, to look for and find uh, ways that, that they didn't talk about um, in which um, faith can be uh, corrupted by um, various things which have the power to corrupt faith by making our faith into um, an idolatrous. Um, I think um, there are uh, um, ideas of, of race and gender as well as of class that are relevant here. I think uh, nationalism can create a kind of idolatry uh, and almost always does when it's virulent. Um, and, and so I, I hesitated to, to draw up a menu. Um, and I say that's an exercise for you to work out, uh, to, to think of the ways in which what these three say in the 19th and early 20th century might be true today, but other things that um, that are true. Here's just one other random example. Um, the media mentality, it seems to me, is not um, innocent. And um, if it becomes the tail that wags the dog of faith, um, then you have something um, to worry about. If the medium is indeed the message, um, then uh, suiting the message to, uh, too, too conveniently, too quickly, to the way in which people are um, prepared to hear it um, might be a way of distorting faith along the lines that suspicion should uncover. Do you think that um, Nietzsche identified with the oppressed or the weak and in a sense was rebelling against the idea of victimhood? No, I, I think um, he wanted desperately to be strong. Um, I think he knew that uh, he wasn't. And in fact, in, in Zarathustra, he presents the overman, the, the uber-strong man, as um, someone whom he is not. Just as John the Baptist says, I'm not the Messiah, Nietzsche is the John the Baptist for the Übermensch. Um, and he is struggling to be that strong individual who is unconstrained by uh, bourgeois morality and so forth. And, and 
he knows he's not quite able to do that. And so where Kierkegaard says, uh, I don't say I am a Christian, I'm becoming a Christian. Nietzsche says, I'm not the overman, I'm becoming the overman. I'm, um, the Germans have just the perfect term for this, unterwegs. Uh, I'm on the way. Uh, it's a journey where my existential identity is in continuous process of formation and reformation um, and never um, reaching a, a fixed point where I'm, I'm done and I can just sit back and relax. I'm asking a second question because I'm, I'm the only one left. Even though, no, you are absolutely within your right. Go ahead. You can even, you can even pontificate a little bit. I won't stop you. <laughs> I'm just reminded that Jesus talks about you must have the mind of a little child to reach heaven. He also talks about lean not on your own understanding. Does it ever worry you that your, uh, that your uh, brilliance, and you're clearly brilliant, and your intellectualism and your knowledge might get in the way of something that is actually very simple. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very fond of the story that's told uh, about uh, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, whose church dogmatics uh, look like this on the shelf, just a, a, a monster scholar uh, who poured a lifetime of prodigious learning into his systematic theology. And towards the end of his life, uh, someone asked him, could you sum it up for us? And I don't think this can quite be right because the quotation comes from the English world and he lived in the German world, so there's got to be a translation in there somewhere. But as recorded... And you can take this as a parable rather than a historical event, if you like. His answer was, yes, I can sum up the church dogmatics for you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if, if as we work through life as Christian believers, we come to understand in, in new and deeper ways what that means... Um, that then we're making real progress. And um, uh, the, the number of volumes we have published uh, is not what it's all about. Um, if those aren't helps along the way, they may be obstacles. Um, and one then needs to come along and become suspicious. Um, uh, one, one of the interesting things about both Marx and Kierkegaard, um, is that um, although they were enormously intellectual and learned and wrote voraciously, they didn't hold academic posts. It was never hair doctor professor. Um, they were always just uh, on their own, speaking, bearing witness, if you like, giving testimony. Thank you. Final question? No? Yes, sir? Sure? Yes. I appreciate very much your writings, and you've been an inspiration for me for uh, many years. I'm, I'm just wondering if there is a place in any of these men's lives 
where they doubted their doubts. In, in the play that uh, Mr. St. Germain wrote, there's a, you sense at least that maybe Freud may have doubted his doubts. Um, or another way to ask it, what if they really considered the purest of those that seek God, uh, Jesus, in, in the way he's represented in the Gospels? Nietzsche says some nice things about Jesus. Um, he, he was aware of that um, 19th century uh, habit of saying Jesus was okay, but Christianity is a catastrophe, <laughs> and, and we have to rescue Jesus from the Christians. Um, I don't know that he deeply admired Jesus, but he was willing to play that game. Um, and seeing Paul uh, reminds me that one of the nice things uh, about being here tonight is that um, I met an old friend who went to high school with my wife. She wasn't my wife when she was in high school. Uh, and another friend who um, uh, is, has been for a long time married to a girl that I dated when I was in high school. So it's a small world, and uh, some old friends uh, meet uh, in this context, and I'm enormously grateful to Socrates in the city for uh, the opportunity to be with you this evening. Thank you, Dr. Westfall. Tremendous. Tremendous. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you, audience. You've been a particularly uh, intelligent audience tonight, I just want to say. Uh, very good questions. Uh, thank you for the, for the great questions. Um, uh, a few announcements before we turn you over to the wine and uh, hors d'oeuvres. Uh, first of all, book signing. As you know, if you've come to Socrates in the City, we try to begin a conversation. It's called Socrates in the City Conversations on the Examined Life, even though Westfall trashed the whole concept uh, earlier. <laughs> pretend he didn't. Uh, thanks a lot. We'll have, we'll have him back, right? Uh, unbelievable. It's a thanks I get. Um, well... As I was saying, um, gerecht. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, the book signing, uh, if you've been to Socrates before, you know that we try to encourage you uh, not just to have, uh, we, we call it conversations on the examined life, and that's what this is meant to be with the Q&A, but it's, it's meant to begin a conversation. And so I do hope you'll avail yourselves of the great books that we have here. Um, no copies of Amazing Grace, I'm very sorry, but there are copies of Wilberforce. No, Bonhoeffer, thank you. Uh, but in all seriousness, we have all copies of our, of our previous speakers. Harris Healy, the bookseller, is helpfully holding up the books. Uh, we've had tremendous speakers, and they've written tremendous books. I just want to encourage you, uh, take advantage of that. And of course, most importantly, um, uh, Dr. Westfall's book, Suspicion and Faith, uh, is right here. If you buy it uh, from Harris, what's the matter, Harris? Yeah, we don't care. Um, I know, I know. It's, uh, but thank you. Um, no, we have, we've got copies of Dr. Westfall's books over there. Please buy the book first and then make your way down to this tiny little table here where he will, he will sign it for you. Um, and please don't uh, monopolize him if there's a line, which there will be, uh, because he, we'd like him to be able to get up to dinner uh, in a few minutes. But so book signing along this wall, if you would line up here, that'd be great. Um, 
Also, the patrons dinner, if you're coming to the patrons dinner, um, the patrons dinner is in that room over there. There's a room there, uh, and that begins uh, as soon as Dr. Westfall is finished uh, signing books. Um, as you know, that's the book table. There's a CD table over there. I think almost all of our past events uh, are available in CD format. Again, I want to encourage you. These are, we've had some amazing evenings um, over the years, and I just would love to encourage you to, to pick up a few CDs and listen to them in the car or whatever you do. Um, CDs of tonight's talk will be available in about 15 minutes uh, from now. I'm amazed by that. You're going to hit me? Yeah. Of course. I have a policy about that that I explained to our friends here. It's a threefold policy. I didn't say it. It was taken out of context. <laughs> I promise never to say it again. Took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I uh, thank you. CDs of tonight's talk actually are going to be available in now 14 minutes from now. Uh, I, I, I would just want to encourage you to, to get those if you, if you would. Um, and if you don't, if you can't wait, if you have to skedaddle, because I know you're very important people because you've told me, um, you, can, you can pay and fill out a form or whatever, and we will mail it to you. So uh, in any case, you can get that. Um, I want to thank the volunteers, if they're still here. If they're not still here, what kind of volunteers are they? Uh, I want to thank the volunteers. Most of them, I think, are from the King's uh, College. Thank you for helping us uh, this evening. Um, we need your emails. As you know, the only way we communicate is, is via email. And if we don't have your email, please go to our website, SocratesInTheCity.com, and sign up. And feel free to sign up your friends as well. And just don't tell them what are they going to do. Um, but we really do. It's important. Often people tell me I was knocked off your email list or something like that. And that's usually because I personally took you off out of spite. But sometimes people will just fall off and they assume it's spite. And it's only been spite in like I would say a dozen cases. I've, I've taken my friends off for saying the wrong thing or looking at me the wrong way. Um, Okay, so please do sign up. We've got a registration desk outside. If you'd like to sign up now, just give us your email. We will do that for you, and we'll uh, put it in, into our system. Um, also, on our, on our website, we have a 10th anniversary testimonial web page. Uh, you go to SocratesInTheCity.com backslash share, or you can just click on, uh, on the link uh, when you see it. But if you have any anecdotes, uh, any thoughts about what Socrates in the City has meant to you, or any, anything specific about an event or anything like that, we'd love to hear what you have to say. We will not publish it unless you give us permission to do so. But we're always curious um, uh, as to what you think, and it's very rare that we actually get to, um, to ask you. So please uh, take advantage of that. Go to our website. Finally, uh, I want to remind you, June 23rd, Dick Cavett will be at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. I am tremendously excited about that evening, so please mark that on your calendars. June 23rd, registration will be up soon, uh, but that will be a spectacular event. And also, uh, we're taking Socrates in the City on the road now and again. We've done it in Chicago. We'll do it in Chicago uh, in, the, um, in the fall again. But in May, May 26th, uh, we're going to be in Fort Worth. Dinesh D'Souza will be the speaker. If you have any friends in Dallas or Fort Worth, well, I think we're also going to do an event in Dallas the night before with Dinesh D'Souza speaking on uh, Life After Death, The Evidence, which was what he uh, spoke on at our Christmas gala two years ago. But we're thrilled to be taking Socrates on the road. If you've got friends in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or if you yourself think that you're going to be in that area in the middle of uh, the end of, of May, I just want you to know that we're doing uh, an event there. I think that covers it. 
I want to thank you uh, for coming tonight, being a part of Socrates in the City. There's more wine and hors d'oeuvres. Uh, enjoy all the wonderful people in this room. A part of the magic of this is this is a great community. Lots of interesting uh, people in this room. Uh, talk to somebody, enjoy yourself, and leave whenever you feel like it uh, because the club, uh, they can't kick you out. We've, got, we've signed that. So thank you. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.